Our passage this morning comes from 1 John chapter 4, verses 7 to 15. Dear friends, John writes, let us love one another because love is from God and everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. The one who does not love does not know God because God is love. God's love was revealed among us in this way. God sent his one and only son into the world so that we might live through him. Love consists in this, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the atoning sacrifice for our sins. Dear friends, if God loved us in this way, we also must love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God remains in us and his love is made complete in us. This is how we know that we remain in him and he in us. He has given us of his spirit. We have seen and we testify that the Father has sent his Son as the world's Savior. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God remains in him and he in God. Would you pray with me? Father, we praise you as the one holy and true God of the universe. And we recognize, God, that love and the reality that we can know love completely comes from you and you alone. So God, I pray that you would encourage the weary heart in here, the heart that is not feeling love this morning. I pray that it would be felt, filled, uh, filled with love this morning uh, by your spirit. And God, I pray that the reality of verse 10, that love consists in this, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the atoning sacrifice for us. I pray that every heart would know that and believe that in here this morning. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Well, if you want to follow along with the message today, we will primarily be in that passage, and uh, there's an outline in your bulletin, and you can use that to track with me. Um, good to see you. Ready for Christmas? Good. Um, some of you did not look sure. Uh, this coming uh, week, uh, Christmas Eve, I can't wait. We have got a special treat for you. We can't wait to have you there, so I hope you are making plans. If you're in town to be there, bring your family, bring your friends, grab some of those cards on the table and invite your coworkers and family members and all the rest. Um, today we are talking from this passage, and we're talking about the arrival, the advent of this king of love. Whatever ails the world, its ultimate shortfall is a loss of love. We live and move and have our being in a cruel, harsh, loveless world. And so the word that he uses here in this passage that Ryan just read is the word agape. Have you heard of this term? This word has been defined variously. I want to give you the historical definition. So typically what happens is you go to seminary and uh, your professors want to kind of strip all of this stuff out of there. And, and I'm going to put it back in because this is what it meant when John used it. This is, this is the word in its context. The word agape, love, uh, means the quality of having a warm regard for, to show a genuine interest in another, to cherish, to have affection for, to highly esteem with fondness of heart. And that is what it means. It, it is a warm affection. It is an emotion. It is a feeling. It is a stance, and it's a, it's a relentless stance toward a person that you care for and you, you have a fond, fondness of heart for. So the world is suffering from a lack of this, and the world would be made better if it comes to the fountain of God's love and drinks deeply, a love expressed toward each other 
as we'll see today, is only made possible when a community of faith has been filled with that love. Now, Paul says it this way, different way, but here's what he says in 1 Corinthians 13, 8. He says, love never fails. Now, that's an absolute statement. Love never fails. Even if the act of love is rejected, it never fails. Even if the love expressed goes unreciprocated and the recipient fails to return that love, love is never a wasted effort. Love is never a waste of your time. Now, ultimately, there are lots of things that will fail us. Now, in this context, in chapter 12 and chapter 13 of 1 Corinthians, actually what he's talking about is he's talking about, ultimately, your spiritual gifts will fail you. Ultimately, your spiritual gifts will pass away, either when Jesus returns for you or you return to Jesus. Eventually, we will all fail to live up to other people's expectations. That is unavoidable. Have you discovered that yet, married spouses? You will. Eventually, our health will fail us. I hope all of you are working hard to keep yourself in shape. I hope you live to 110. But the truth is, is the, of the matter is this. No matter how many or few donuts you eat in life, your health eventually is going to fail you. Something is going to get you. Eventually. Eventually, someday, uh, people will let us down. A parent can abandon a child. Coaches can cut us from teams. Friends disavow or disown us. A spouse can leave us or betray us. At some point, your favorite sports team, trust me, is going to let you down, especially if they are called the Seattle Seahawks. (laughs) And even the sun itself in our solar system has a shelf life. Now, scientists estimate it has about seven to eight billion more years left. That's how much power it has. Even the sun itself is going to die. Even the world, the planets orbiting the sun are going to die a cosmic heat death in the universe. Everything, it seems, will fail us, but not love. Love never fails. Love is never a waste of time. Love is never a wasted effort. And so John, the Apostle, Paul, uh, the Apostle John is going to tell us why it can't fail. He's going to tell us why love is always a sure bet and why Jesus himself embodies the love that God wants to see working in and through our lives. Number one, God's love makes it possible to love one another. A God's love makes it possible for us to love each other with the same kind of love. And so what John says here is he begins this passage by saying, dear friends. Now, the Greek word here is the word literally beloved. And that's ironic because that's John's nickname. That's the nickname that the other disciples gave John. They called him the one in whom Jesus loved. Did Jesus love all of them? Sure. (laughs) Of course he did. But John was the one that he had this warm regard, this affection toward. He was was Jesus' boy. I mean, Jesus had him under his wing. And so now John uses this same phrase, beloved, toward his disciples. He says, beloved, dear friends, let us love one another. Why? Because love is from God, and everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. So if you have the God kind of love in you and you're expressing it to other people, he says that's evidence that God himself is in your life. And the one who does not love does not know God because God is love. So he calls them the beloved, and he says, let us. That's what's called grammatically a hortatory clause. A hortatory statement in the Greek is literally a grammar that's built into the the statement. 
And, it, and, it's, and it's a strong, persuasive statement. It's a strong appeal that he's making. He's saying, I want you to do this. This should characterize your life. Why? Because love comes from God. So if you're going to have the God kind of love in your life, you've got to get it from God. And when you get it from God, you actually get the God who is love. This is, as Daniel said earlier, is his defining characteristic. Now, when you think of a defining characteristic of something, what do you think of? If you think of the uh, city, New York City, what do you think of? I visited there many years ago, and I just think of, like, the smell. If you're from there, I'm sorry, but I just remember that. I remember, like, the smell of garbage in the street. But I'm sure it's different now. (laughs) Some of you are like, no, it's not. What do you think of the Empire State Building? Broadway. You may think of the traffic or the, this city that is, consists of just these towering buildings. Now, you may think of the Freedom Tower or you may think of any number of things. You may think, when you think of New York City, you may think of its East Coastness. What do you think of when you think of Seattle? I think of the Space Needle, right? I think of its West Coastness. I think of really horrifically built and designed tra- tra- like roads, right? Just terrible. Uh, I think of Seattle, the place, uh, I think of uh, Starbucks coffee, the place uh, where Starbucks sort of uh, comes from. I think of the mountain ranges, the Olympic mountain range to the west and the Cascade mountain range to the east. I think of of, uh, Mount Rainier looming over the city like a sentinel waiting to blow and cover it with pyroclastic ash, right? It's rainy. I used to live there. It's rainy. It's damp. You don't see the sun much. It's mossy. I think of Pike's Place Market or Pioneer Square or ferry boats going across to Gig Harbor. I think of all that stuff. But those are characteristics of the city when it comes to your mind. What about a circle? What's characteristic of a circle? The defining characteristic of a circle is that it is a round shape that has no sides and no angles. That's characteristic of a circle. Now, God also has characteristics. There are things that just come with God. When you get God, you get these things, right? So what do we know about God? God is eternal. The Bible says that God is from everlasting to everlasting. If you believe in Jesus, you have everlasting life, but you only have it from this point forward because you came into being, but God didn't come into being. God has existed from eternity past on. God is also a necessary and self-existent being. What do we mean by this? God's being, God's essence, God's nature is necessary. So everything that does exist, including God, exists, has an explanation for its existence. Everything does. And the explanation for its existence is either the necessity of its nature or its contingency. So it's either that that thing, whatever it is, exists necessarily so, and it exists eternally, or the thing exists contingently. It is dependent on something else for its existence and emergence. Have I lost you yet? Right, this is the doctrine of aseity. This is the Christian, Judeo-Christian doctrine of aseity. God is a necessary being. He's not a contingent being. God is a self-existing being. Nothing outside of him generates him. And when you think of God, you should think of that. God is also sovereign. What do we mean by this? Essentially, the word sovereign just means that God is maximally free. God is free to do whatever is within the counsel of his will and his nature. God is also just. We see this over and over again in the Old Testament. God commands his people to act justly. Why? Because God is just. 
And then in the New Testament, we see Jesus several times describes God as the just judge. What does that mean? That means that every decision that God makes is warranted. He does so justifiably. And he does so without prejudice, and he does so uh, without, with impartiality. And God is personal. You, know you want to know what a person is? You want to know what the definition of a, a personable being is? It's God. God is a knowledgeable being. He has understanding. He has wisdom, fathomless wisdom. And God is personable. God wants to be in relationship. And God is powerful. We say that God is maximally powerful. What this means is whatever state of affairs, whatever God wants to create, whatever state of affairs he wants to bring into existence, he can do that. So long as it's according to the counsel of his will and his nature. And God is knowledgeable. God is maximally knowledgeable. There is no truth proposition that God does not know, and God does not know anything that turns out to be false. In other words, God knows only and all truth propositions. God is maximally knowledgeable. So all of these things, listen, all of these attributes, all of these characteristics, they are, they are magnificent. They are glorious. This tells us that we have a great God, but what John wants to say is, yeah, great. In addition to all that, understand God is, as to his nature, definitionally love. When you think of God, you think of the being who is the definition of what love is supposed to look like, agape love. And so the way that we can love each other with God's kind of love is that God has poured his love in us. So God so loved the world. And the people of the world are lost, and they're fallen, and they're in need of his great heart. Number two, God loved us first, and he loved us sacrificially. So if God is defined by the quality of love, what is that love like? And how do we see it? Verse 9 says God's love was revealed. It was made manifest. It was disclosed. It came about. We saw it. Among us this way, God sent his one and only son into the world so that we might live through him. And so here's what love consists of. You want to know what it consists of? You know, want to know how it's defined? In this, not that we love God. Not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the atoning sacrifice for our sins. Dear friends, beloved of God, if God loved us in this way, we also must love one another. Verse 19, we love because he first loved us. God goes first. He takes the initiative. He doesn't wait for us to wake up one day and say, you know, I think I need God in my life. No. The scripture says, Paul put it this way. He says in Romans chapter 5, 6 through 8, he says, while we were still sinners, like while we were enemies of the cross, God sent his son to die for us. God gave his one and only son while we were still sinners. So in any relationship that becomes reconciled, someone has to go first, don't they? Somebody has to step up. Somebody has to step up and say, I'm sorry, but God here is the offended party, so God is not going to say, I'm sorry. Instead, what God does is he provides for your forgiveness for offending him because he is the offended party. It is his holiness and his righteous nature, his sovereign care over us that has been dishonored. Sin is an open-handed slap to the face of God's high honor. And this is why God has to do something about it. This is why God has to address that. So he sends an atoning sacrifice, a man to die on a cross for us, his son. 
And as an atoning sacrifice, Jesus is able to once and for all, write that down, once and forever, once and for all to pay the penalty of our sins. So what is our sin? Our sin is a debt that we could not pay. Jesus pays that debt, the debt we owe. Our sin is a defeat. (laughs) Our sin is a defeat of the human race. The human race has now fallen. We are downfallen. And Jesus wins the victory. Jesus hanging on a cross wins the victory for the human race. Our sin demands divine justice and punishment. Jesus bears the stripes and wears the brambles and takes the nails and takes the lance. And sin is defeated. Jesus defies the boulder and he rolls away the stone and he comes out of the grave alive bodily to never die again. Hallelujah. And so God's love takes the initiative to seek and to save that which was lost, all of us. And all who believe in the crucified, resurrected Son of God have eternal life with Jesus. So the quality of God's love is that it goes first and it is sacrificial. It's selfless. It's others-centered. Number three, God's love is visible in the lives of those who know him. So his love is visible in the lives of those who know him. So if love is a defining characteristic of God and sacrificial love defines his love toward us, then how is it seen in the world? How could it be seen in the world? Now he gets into it. Verse 12, watch. No one has ever seen God. So all those traits we talked about before, the maximal greatness of God, God is immortal. He's not a man. He's invisible. You can't see him. So no one has ever seen this unseen God with a material eye. So how do you see his love? If we love one another, God remains in us, and his love is made complete in us. This is how we know that we remain in him, that we tabernacle with him, that we stay with him, and that are in him, and that his love is in us. He has given us the Holy Spirit. Do you have the Holy Spirit? That's the sign. That's the signal that you're in. That's the badge of membership. And we have seen and we testify that the Father has sent the Son as the world's Savior. That's the apostolic confession. Here's ours. And whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God and God the Son, God remains in him and he in God. And we have come to know him and believe uh, the love that God has for us. God is love. And the one who remains in love remains in God. And God remains in him. So he says God is unseen. He is not flesh and blood. He's not mortal. He's immortal. He's not visible to the naked eye or the material eye, the physical eye. He's invisible. And God must, his love, and he has great love toward us. So how do you see it? Well, God dwells in the people who make the good confession, the apostolic confession. And believers have now received the Holy Spirit. So you got the confession on one hand, and it's right doctrine. It's confessing the right thing about God. And then on the other hand, you have the presence of the Holy Spirit. Paul says, God has poured out his great love into our hearts by the Holy Spirit. That's what Paul says in Romans 5. And so if God is immortal and unseen, then it stands to reason that the only way you could see this eternal, selfless, going first love is to see it embodied in a human life. And this is who Jesus is. John 1.14 he says, the word, who's the word? The logos. He just opened this book by saying, now the, in the beginning was the word. Two things you need to know about him. He, he was with God in the beginning when the world began, and he was God as to his essential nature. 
So this eternal word who was with God and was God, look, he became flesh and made his tabernacle, his dwelling among us, and we have seen his glory and the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father full of grace and truth. Notice those two things linked there. He becomes a man and he embodied, he's embodied in a human life, the life of Jesus of Nazareth, and then what happens? We see it. We see the glory. We see the love. We see his love poured out in a human life, an embodiment. And now we who believe in this word and make this good confession and receive the presence of the Holy Spirit, we now show that love and we show people the love of God. This is what Jesus told them in John 13. He says, a new command I give you, love one another. That's not new. That's right out of Leviticus chapter 19. So what's new about the command? This part. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. How did I love you? I gave everything for you. How did I love you? I, I, it was a selfless love. It went first. It didn't wait for you to ask. It didn't wait for you to seek me. I went first, and I loved you, and I left it all on the field. I gave my very best for you. And by this, everyone will know that you are my disciples. How do you know the church of God is in this town? Because the church of God, the community of God, this is their driving ethic. This is what drives them. They are the people who have been deluged, filled with the presence and the power and the love of God, and they are the people who show this love to each other, and they're the people who show this love to the community. So it is on display in a loving community of saints who have been transformed by the remarkable, changeless love of God. Number four, God's love is the basis of our confident hope. So if your life has been filled with this, you're, this, you have a confident hope. Have you ever worried about Judgment Day? Have you ever worried about it? Have you ever had a moment where you thought, I don't know. I mean, today was a pretty rough day. I don't know. If Jesus came back today, I don't know how I would fare, right? Have you had that thought? I've had that thought. And this is why, because Christians have these thoughts, this is why he writes the passage. This is why it's in the book. It's in the book to not only exhort us, but encourage us. And here's what he says, verse 17. He says, in this, love is made perfect. It's made complete in us, with, with us, so that we may have the confidence in the day of judgment because as he is, so also are we in the world. How is he? Well, there are some attributes and aspects of God that, that are not like us in the world. We are not maximally knowledgeable. Are you? I don't even know what most of you are thinking right now. I know some of you are thinking, probably, I can guess, about lunch, like this afternoon or something like that. You look like your stomachs are rumbling or something, but I don't know. I don't know what's in your mind. God knows everything. And so that's not true about us. God is also maximally present. That's not true about us. I'm located. I'm finite. So all of those kind of maximal attributes that we talked about, those great making properties, those great attributes of God that we talked about, those things are not true of us. So what does he mean here? As God is, so we are in the world. The context is fear. The context is God is totally confident that you're going to make it. If you have made the good confession and you've received the Holy Spirit, on judgment day, you have no reason to fear. That's the context. God's confidence is now yours. You take it in your own life. He says in verse 18, there is no fear in love. Instead, a perfect love drives out fear. 
Because fear involves punishment. So the one who fears is not complete in love. What he's saying is God's love is perfect. And if God's love has been poured into you, you're not a perfect person, but God is perfect. And you have a confident expectation that on that day, Christ's sacrifice will be enough. Christ's sacrifice will be enough. So a life that is characterized and defined by fear and anxiety and trepidation, listen, these things are incompatible. It's incompatible that I am filled with God and filled with love and also driven by my fear and driven by my anxiety and my worry. Doesn't mean I don't have anxieties. Doesn't mean I don't have worries. I do. But my life is not being driven by them. So a life that is characterized and defined by fear is a life where a person has just, they do not have a developed sense of God's complete love for them. When I was a kid, my dad's uh, best friend was a guy named Jim Harold. Jim Harold was his best pal, and he was over there probably at least once a week, and he lived around the way from us. We called it around the way. It was really around the block, but this was a long country block uh, in Goosen County, Virginia. And so, uh, but Jim Harold, you know, he was a retired guy. He had a lot of money, um, and... And I just loved going over there because he had a lot of stuff we could play with. And we always got to shoot his guns. Like, we got to, like, hunt jackrabbits in his backyard. And he had built this brand-new house. And it was this beautiful sort of big house that was just on top of this mud hole. <laughs> I just remember his, his property just feeling like it was a mud pit. And as a kid, I loved that. I was like, Jim, please never plant grass. This is perfect. This is fun. But I was a really little guy, and, and, and between the long gravel driveway and his front porch, it was a long distance, and he had chained these two dogs right there between the driveway and between the front porch. And let me tell you, these dogs were satanic demon-possessed dogs. <laughs> and as a little, I mean, I was a little guy. I remember my dad would pull up in his baby blue Ford F-150 truck, and I'd sit there, and those dogs would explode out of those dog houses. And they would, the only thing holding them back from attacking us would be their chains, and I would sit there and just shiver, tremble, because I was terrified of dogs. And so my dad would come around, and he'd open the door and pick me up and throw me on top of his shoulders. And he would walk me from the end of the driveway to the porch the whole way there. Now, the whole way there, these dogs are jumping up on him and trying to get me. <laughs> and at no point ever was I ever worried about my dad's safety. <laughs> it never occurred to me to think about his safety. But I also was never worried about his competence. I knew that I was going to make it to the porch every time I did without those things just tearing me apart and tearing me off of him because he was a big, burly guy. And I knew that he was competent. Listen, in Christ, listen, we are secure. I'm going to put this up on the screen. We are secure in the love and the competence of the one who holds us. We are secure in the love and the competence of the one who died for us and holds us. And if you have any other hope, if you're trusting in any other thing, you don't have any hope. You have no hope. He is the one who holds us. And so what he's trying to tell us here in this passage is you have no reason to look forward to a day in which you're going to be declared unrighteous. You're going to be declared out. Uh, cast into outer darkness because you've made the good confession. Jesus Christ is Lord and Savior. He died on the cross for my sins. He rose bodily three days later. He has ascended to the right hand of the power of God. 
And by that confession, the Holy Spirit has now filled my life. The love of God permeates my heart. And it assures me that on the day, I will be judged righteous, not unrighteous. And Paul asked the question this way, what could possibly drag you out of the loving arms of your God? What could do it? He says right here in Romans 8.31, I'm going to show it to you. He says, if God is for us, then who could be against us? Okay, full stop. God, whose corner is he in? Yours. <laughs> God is in your corner, right? So if God is in your corner, if God is for you, who can be against you? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? Who will bring any charge against God's elect, those whom God has chosen? Because it's God who justifies, so the God who's sitting on the throne, the God who is the judge of your life, he's the one who's in your corner, and he justifies you. Why? On what basis? Who is the one who condemns? No one. Christ Jesus, who died, more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God. What's he doing? He's your defense attorney. So not only is the judge judging in your favor because you're his child, but Jesus is your advocate. Jesus is your defense attorney representing your case before God. And then so he says in verse 35, so who shall separate us then from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? Nothing. Nothing could separate you. Nothing could drag you out of the loving hands and the loving arms of your God. Nothing. So you are secure in the love and the competence of the one who has done the work and the one who holds you and the one who keeps you. Number five, God's love is proven in our love for others. So if that's true then, then our love, God's love, is proven then in our love for others. So how do you know you've got one of these believers? How do you know you got one? <laughs> how do you know you got a church full of believers? Well, you got a congregation, you have an assembly of people who make the good confession. And they've been filled with the Holy Spirit. They've been baptized in the presence of the Holy Spirit. That's how you know. And then what's the evidence of that? Love. We express our love. He says in verse 20, if anyone says, I love God, and yet hates his brother or sister, he's a liar. But the person who does not love his brother or sister whom he has seen cannot possibly love a God whom he's not seen. And we have this command for him. The one who loves God must also love his brother or sister. You show me a life that, is, that just is a life with a stone-cold heart, with a frozen heart toward others, with no love to express toward anyone else. And I'll show you a person, despite what they say, despite whether or not they say, I know God, I love God, they don't have God. They don't have Christ in their life. Listen, do you know what the number one most popular ethnicity it is, uh, is to claim in the United States today? Do you want to take a guess? Being Irish. Now, for those of you who are not and you're claiming that, I am Irish, knock it off. <laughs> no, just joking. I don't care. I grew up my whole life. Just our family knew we were Irish. And then I, I took a 23andMe spit test, sent it off, and I got it back. It turns out I'm only 30% Irish. So I'm one of these people that's been claiming that. But, I'm, but, I, but the rest of it is profoundly Northern European, like profoundly Caucasian, and mostly uh, Scots-Irish. 
right? So I'm pretty close. I'm, I'm close enough. Yes, I am. <laughs> but the vast majority of people claim that in America. Uh, 200 years ago, that for sure was not true. No one wanted to, wanted to say, yes, I'm, I'm uh, Jeff Kennedy uh, <laughs> from Northern Ireland. No, no one would say that. And so there, there is, you could claim something is true about your life, but the fact is, is that the facts might show otherwise. The facts might show that that is actually not true of you. And so if the Holy Spirit's present is not, uh, presence is not really working in you and working among you to express the love of God to others, there's a good indication that you're probably not saved. You're probably not a Christian. Now, if you are a Christian, you have no fear for the day of judgment. But if you're not a Christian and there really isn't evidence, you say, well, wait a second, man, I yelled at my wife this morning. No, I didn't do that. So, but, but you say, man, I mean, I have those days, folks. I have those days where I come home and I go, I don't know. If Jesus came back today, I'm not so sure what his judgment on me would be. Where you doubt. That's natural. That's perfectly natural. Listen, but if you even care about that, the Holy Spirit is probably in your life. I'm talking about a person who is cold and callous and could care less whether or not they're being a jerk to everyone around them. I'm talking about a person who is just a loveless heart that is frozen cold and has no love or no compassion or empathy or or mercy toward others. So God's love is shown and made visible in the lives of those who claim to know him. And who are we commanded to love? Who? Four people in the Bible. Number one, God. Love God. He's the first person. This is the Shema. This is uh, Israel's most important passage. It's Deuteronomy chapter 6, 4 through 10. It's hear, O Israel, Shema Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one Lord, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength. And then Jesus adds one in the New Testament, love him with all your mind. In other words, love him with all that you are, with the totality of your being. This is our obligation, to love the God who first loved us, who first gave his grace to us. And then Jesus says, the second commandment is just like it. Very similar. We are to love those made in the image of God as we love ourselves. And he uses the word neighbor. And some snarky Pharisee in his group there, listening to him teach, says, "Uh, teacher, who is my neighbor? Like, who's my neighbor? He's wanting to qualify himself. What he's wanting is a legal loophole to say, oh, I don't have to really love all those really unsavory people that don't look like me and think like me and believe like me like those Samaritans. That's what he's thinking. And Jesus says, let me tell you a story about a good Samaritan. (laughs) And he kind of settles the issue. And that is the person that you think is undeserving and unlovable, that's the person God loves. God loves you and God loves them too. The person who doesn't look like you or think like you or believe like you or live in the same town that you do or share your mores or share your virtues or your values, God loves that person profoundly and Jesus died for them too. And that's what he's trying to tell them in the parable of the good Samaritan. So love your neighbors. And then he says, love those who love you. Well, of course you're supposed to do that. Of course you're supposed to love the people who love you. Love your family and love your neighbors and love the people who who adore you. Isn't that easy? Jesus says, Anybody could do that. What reward will you, will you gain in heaven for loving the people who adore you back, who reciprocate that love? No. Jesus says, don't just love the people who love you. Love the people who hate you. Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Now he's setting the bar high. 
And so you show me a person who makes the good confession, who confesses that Jesus Christ is Lord and Savior to the glory of God, and a person who has been filled with the Holy Spirit, a member of this holy assembly who is trying with all of their heart to work the love of God out toward others. I'll show you a real believer. I'll show, I'll show you a saint in the Lord. Not perfect, but having received God's perfected love on the cross in themselves. Uh, just to give you an illustration of this, in 2007, wearing jeans, a t-shirt, and a Washington Nationals baseball cap, a young musician opened his violin case and took out his violin and began playing in a Washington, D.C. bus station, playing six classical pieces that day, one by Bach that is widely considered the greatest classical piece ever written. He played for about 45 minutes, a 45-minute pro bono concert right there. He made a whopping $32.17, and he went largely ignored and unnoticed. One out of a thousand people that passed him that day, this is actually, you can watch this later on YouTube, stopped and noticed who he was. They, they hurried past him, but then they realized, they recognized that this was the famous violinist Joshua Bell. Now, just three days earlier, Joshua Bell had filled the Boston Symphony Hall at $100 a seat, playing a Stradivarius that is worth $3.5 million. Two weeks after the bus station performance, he played to a packed house, standing room only in Bethesda, Maryland, making $1,000 a minute for his talents. Joshua Bell is one of the most sought-after, well-paid talents in the world, and there he is in a baseball cap and a t-shirt, giving people a free concert, and no one even noticing that greatness is among them. No one even seeing that majesty has come, as is within an arm's length. And hardly anyone noticed that one of the greatest violinists of our time was giving them a free concert. And many people on the day of judgment are going to have this experience with Jesus. The people who lived in Jesus' day, the Judeans, the Galileans, those in Jerusalem, they're going to have this experience. They're going to have realized someday people will look back and realize that the Son of God and God the Son walked among them in humble clothing, and they missed the day of his visitation, the day in which his glory was embodied his love residing in a human life, and still others will realize they missed an opportunity to minister to Jesus. That was Jesus wearing those ragged clothes. That was Jesus I said no to. That was Jesus who I barred from my community because the love of God was not in them. And Jesus put it this way. Want to get shocked? Merry Christmas. Watch this. He says in Matthew 25, he says, when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne, the King, the King of love. And all the nations will be gathered before him. And he will separate them one from another just as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats and he will put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. And then the King will say to those on his right, come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. And I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. And I was a stranger, and you took me in. And I was naked, and you clothed me. And I was sick, and you took care of me. And I was in prison, and you came to visit me. And then the righteous will answer him, what? When? 
Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you a stranger and take you into our house or, or without clothes and clothe you? When did we see you sick in prison and come and visit you? And he will say, and the king will answer them, truly I tell you, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did it for me. And then he will also say to those on his left, depart from me, you who are cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. Because I was hungry and you gave me nothing. I was thirsty, and you didn't give me a drink. I was a stranger, you didn't invite me in. I was naked, and you didn't clothe me. I was sick and in prison, and you didn't take care of me. You didn't come to visit me. And they, will, they too will answer, what? When? When did we not do any of this for you, Lord? When did we see you go hungry or thirsty or a stranger without clothes or sick or in prison and not help you? And, and, and then he will answer them, truly, I tell you, whatever you did not do for the least of these, you did not do for me. And they will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Listen, the defining characteristic of God, this invisible God whom you cannot see in heaven, is selfless, self-giving, sacrificial love. It is a love that goes first, that while you and I were sinners, Christ died for the ungodly. While we were enemies of God, Christ dies for our sins. And that otherwise unseen love can only be seen in the life of Jesus, and now it can be seen in the life and the sacrificial, selfless love of the church. And based on his teaching in Matthew 25, we will be held account into account for how we have treated the least of those around us, among us and outside of our walls. Now listen, if you're a believer and you've made the good confession and the Holy Spirit has filled your life and you have the Holy Spirit in your life, you have no reason to fear judgment on the last day. But Paul also said this, look at yourselves, do an introspective, examine yourselves to make sure that you're actually in the faith. And that's very appropriate for us to do. Will you pray with me? Father, we thank you that you have sent the king of love the king who showed us the love of God that goes first, that takes the initiative to seek and to save that which was lost before that which was lost ever asks for salvation. And we thank you for that. We thank you, God, that your unseen love was embodied in a human life, a little baby that was born in humble circumstances, a little baby who grew up to be a sinless lamb of God sacrificed for the sins of the world, and we thank you for that. We thank you more than that, that you have poured the Holy Spirit out on us, that you have filled our hearts full of your love with the Holy Spirit through the Holy Spirit of God, and we just thank you for that as well. And if you're here this morning and you realize, you realize this morning that you've never received this free gift, would you do it right now? It's not hard. You make the good confession. You confess what is true. God, it's true that I've fallen into sin. Sin has completely destroyed me. It's defeated my life. And apart from any rescue, I will be lost forever, separated from God. And Christ has been crucified to atone for your sins, to bring you into now the family of God. God, we confess our sins. And God, as believers, we also confess the fact that oftentimes we fall short of expressing this God kind of love, this warm regard, this heart, the heart of God. 
And Lord, we just pray that you would give us the courage. We pray that you would light us on fire with this love of God for each other and those who are outside of our walls. Would you help us to to live according to this truth? We thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen.